Hi, and welcome to the Climbing Consulting Podcast with me, your host, Nick Sinnott. I created Climbing Consulting to give those who want to accelerate their careers in consulting access to the best mentors in the field through interviews with leading figures in the industry. In each episode, I interview someone who's made it to the top to find out their tips, advice, and strategies so that you can achieve the same success. This episode is a special one for me as I got to sit down with the managing partner of the consulting firm that I used to work for. Today's guest is Adrian Betteridge of Baringa Partners. Baringa Partners is a rapidly growing multinational consultancy and since I left back in 2015 it has close to doubled in size from around 350 consultants to over 600 today. We cover a whole range of topics in this conversation, including how Baringa Partners has managed to grow so quickly in such a short space of time, Adrian's guiding life philosophy and what you should take from it, as well as how Adrian maintains a healthy work-life balance, juggling his role as managing partner with bringing up four growing boys at home with his wife Jenny. We also touch on Adrian's view on diversity in consulting, as well as Adrian's advice on how to manage alcohol and the social aspect of consulting. Adrian's made it to the top of his firm, having never drunk, and I think you'll find his take on this really interesting. I had a great time speaking with Adrian, and I'm sure you'll get a lot from what he has to say. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Adrian Betteridge. Hi Adrian, welcome to the podcast. Hey Nick, thanks for having me on. It's, it's great to be back here. And I think just as some context for my listeners, for those who don't know really, uh, Adrian actually used to be my boss. So I spent three years working here for Beringa in their insurance practice, uh, left in 2015 to do other things. Adrian, uh, during that time, became the managing partner here. And how, how big is Beringa now? Yes, yeah, so we've got 600 people in the business and 60 partners. Six. So I think when I left, it was three, maybe 300. Was that, a, you, you might be able to tell me better what you yeah, were in 2015. Yeah, a little bit more than that. Yeah, we've been growing reasonably successfully over the last few years, sort of 10, 15, 20% a year. So yeah, it's going really well. Wow. And we'll definitely come on to actually how you've achieved that growth, because that's a huge number of people and obviously a huge number of projects to win over that time. I thought it'd be good actually just to start, maybe for those who don't know you as well, with with your background, how how did you get into consulting? Yeah, well, a bit of serendipity. It was uh, I was at Loughborough University studying economics, and um, I remember the day I a football training session, and it was the end of season. We went to uh, drinks afterwards with the football team, and I walked into this room where I thought we were supposed to be having our drink session, and there was this American lady standing up, and I walked through the doors, and she looked at me, and I was in my shorts and shin pads. And she said, sit down, you're late. Uh, um, so I sat down in this room and it was a pitch for Anderson Consulting Summer Intern Scheme. And so I kind of sat down because I was embarrassed, uh, listened to her, her presentation and picked up a booklet and applied for the intern scheme at Anderson Consulting and, uh, and got it. And so I went and did an internship with them between my second and third year at university. She didn't remember you as the, the guy who came late with the shin pads then? You no, didn't. no, I was anonymous, thank, <laughs> thankfully. And um, I got the job as a summer intern. And at the end of that eight-week period, they offered me a full-time job to join Anson Consulting when I graduated with my economics degree. So all a bit of luck. But I loved my summer intern um, experience, that kind of advising and helping clients just really grabbed me and thought, okay, yeah, this, is a, this is what I wanted to do until I work out what I'm going to do when I grow up, <laughs> which is what most people do when they enter the consulting workplace is use it as a deferred decision-making career until they work out what they want to do when they get older. Are you still, are you still trying to figure out what you want to do yeah, when you get older? Yeah, that's right. 24 years later, I'm uh, holding out until I have to get a proper job. And so that was obviously the start. 
you got the summer internship. I, I assume you got offered a, a job off the back of that. Did you go straight in after university? Correct, yeah, yeah I, got, I got the um, I got the offer at the end of the summer job with the intent to then use my final year to one obviously complete my degree, uh, but to go out into the world and interview with lots of other organisations. Um, but time kind of got away with me. Had a good final year and decided just to take the job that was on offer. And I started, I think it was the twenty third of August, nineteen ninety five. Uh, at Anderson Consulting. And you said, obviously, you've been in the industry now 24 years. So Anderson, I'm right, it came Accenture. Correct. And then you obviously moved over to Beringa and now running Beringa. I actually want us to start there. And apologies, we might jump around chronologically a little bit. No problem. Um, I'm very interested in, like you say, the start of your career sounded quite quite spontaneous, I guess would be a word I'd use. Yeah. Happy, happy chance led you to that, and obviously you did well on the internship. I'm interested about the the road to managing partner. Was you obviously joined Beringa to to head up FS at the time, if, if that's right? Is that right? Yeah. So um, the business was about 45 people when I joined, and a very strong content led consulting proposition for the energy market. Mm. Uh, and I joined as their first external partner hire to diversify the business and enter into a financial services market. So to give a bit of hedge to the energy consulting practice and to start a new area of consulting for them and to grow a financial services consulting business from scratch. And I had so much fun doing it. And uh, yeah, I had a really good time. It wasn't the best time in the world to start an FS consulting business. 2007, you know, 2008 and nine came along with Lehman's going bust and all consultants weren't the most popular people at the yeah. time, given the, the cost pressures some of our clients were facing. But during the that recession and that challenging time, we kind of sharpened our pencil and really got focused on what it was clients were looking for, what value we could add. And aligning that with their agenda just meant that actually that tough time was a really good time for us to learn our trade and stood us in good uh, standing for when the market started to come back and we grew rapidly. How did you make that decision? I think we'll come back then to the managing partner bit, but I I, I genuinely didn't realise you joined Beringa when it was so small. You were at Accent- Anderson, then Accenture before. You were doing very well there. It's quite a big change, isn't it, going from a 200, 300,000 person consultancy to a, to a 45? How did you make that decision? It was like... I love Accenture and I love my time at Anson Consulting. I had a brilliant time there, great friends, great client opportunities. I learned so much and I began to, I made partner in 2005, went to my first partner conference and sat at the back of the room thinking, I thought I'd made it making partner. That was kind of a, one of those big yeah. career milestones that we, you know, we all, we plan it and, and we, we strive really hard for it and you get to that point. And I had that kind of Stephen R. Covey moment where you realise you've climbed to the top of the tree but you're in the wrong jungle. And so I, I got to that position and thought, I've learned so much here, but there's so much I want to do, and I don't think I'm going to be able to do it in this organization. So it's almost reaching that goal then liberated me enough to start thinking more entrepreneurially about, I want to build a business, run a business, grow a business, take a little bit more risk, take everything I've learned over the last 10, 11 years, and go and create something and build something with a group of friends and colleagues uh, with a slightly different p- proposition for clients and a slightly different proposition for people. And so that was the the trigger for going around and um, thinking about starting my own consulting business from scratch. Then I met the, the guys at Bring who are running this energy uh, consulting business and just clicked uh, culturally, interpersonally, strategy-wise with what they were trying to do in the energy market. 
and they gave me a blank piece of paper and free remit to go build a business. And I thought, this is my chance to go and do something a little bit more adventurous and away from the, the big organization to go do a startup. And so that was the, the leaping off point. And uh, I've never looked back. And do you remember when you were having those conversations, sort of what it was that made you want to, to join Beringa? Or, or maybe if you were, when you were thinking about what you were looking for, the, the sort of attributes or characteristics of a company you're either going to start or join? It's interesting. I had no intention really of joining anybody. I actually went and interviewed with about nine small consulting businesses as a mechanism for gaining some insight of how they ran their business so I would learn how to run my business. And so I had no intention of joining them. But after I went around and met all these companies, Beringa just stood out as an organization that had been founded upon values and principles that were exactly what I would like to create uh, and then the thought of starting my business in my sort of spare bedroom versus they already had a business, they had a brand, they had a finance director and an HR person, uh, and I didn't have any of those things. So the thought really tipped me over the edge when I thought, if I'm going to hire people and say, we're starting in my spare bedroom or come and join this company that has an HR person and a finance person, uh, I thought it'd be easier to to hire people into an established business. Um, it would bankroll my starting of the FS practice, but still give me all the freedom to build a business in my own image and with a blank piece of paper. So I kind of had the best of both worlds and, and building the FS business inside Beringa was, uh, it was like doing it on my own, but on speed. Yeah. I had that support and that infrastructure uh, and some colleagues around me that you know spurred me on, challenged my thinking and supported me through that process. So, yeah, it was a great decision and uh, been really appreciative of that opportunity I was given at that time back in, that was 16th of April 2007, I joined Beringa. And then, like like you say, it's sort of, it's obviously worked out very well. I, I, I wonder, though, at the time, that, that first conversation goes well, then the recession hits. Yeah. <laughs> How did you have to adjust your your approach from what you'd been sort of seeing, I guess, at Accenture in the boom years to suddenly far hunting in a market where they're not looking for, for consultancy so much. Yeah, it's a real, it's a real test of character. It's um, a really emotional roller coaster. The thought that by the time that really started to bite, we'd already hired 17, 18 people. Uh, and then we all got kicked out of our client project work and we're all on the bench. And so there's a real moment of, you know, um, are we going to make it? Are we going to have to let people go? Are we going to have to make people redundant? And they've just taken that risk and left a bigger firm and come and joined us and so we were absolutely determined not to have to let anyone go and that we would just hunker down and go out there and work out ways to add value to clients where they'd be willing to um, even take us on for free for two weeks to just get some traction and then demonstrate that value and then from there build up uh, the loyalty and the trust with the client network that appreciated what it is that we had to offer the depth of skill and expertise in the FS market and um whilst very difficult, probably the most difficult six to nine months of my life, 2008, 2009, um, it was the making of me and the making of our business. And we learned a lot about grit, resilience, and you know, faith, really, the, the ability to believe it's going to turn out well, even though the evidence is telling you that it's probably not going to end well. And that sort of delusional optimism is something that stood me in good stead. And during that time, do you remember any any pieces of advice from, say, mentors or, or any books you read? I mean, I know we, we're both avid podcast listeners. 
I don't know if they had podcasts back then, but <laughs> any you know, there was, is there any poignant things that you just remember that sort of really helped you hold your resolve during that time? Yeah, I read um, one of the. There's a couple of books that stood out um, from my sort of earlier period in my early twenties that I read that really um, have always been there for me. If you like, I, I've read them and I've reread them, um, and they have been good bedfellows through the good times and the bad times in helping me sort of adjust and take stock and plan and and give me the confidence to go execute the dream as it were and they are seven habits of highly effective people by Stephen R. Covey so the you know habit two um, begin with the end in mind you know just really struck me as you know, make sure you've got a vision and you know what it is you're trying to achieve um, and so that book and then the other one and that really has stayed with me since I was a, you know, a late teenager, 18, 19, I read this one. It's called As a Man Thinketh by James Allen. And, and a very short book, just incredible in the way it puts you in charge of your destiny. It basically teaches you that you are a product of your own thoughts, not the external environment. And, and it, it, it teaches you to be proactive. Habit one, uh, Stephen R. Covey's book, it's, it's the best book I've ever read in making you the master of your own destiny, making sure that it's your thoughts and the way you think about things that create what happens to you in the future of your life. And so in those dark times, you're thinking, actually, I am still in control. It may be the worst consulting market in the world, may have clients kicking us out, but if you believe in something enough and have a vision of where you're trying to get to uh, and then go work your socks off to make it, then good things can happen. I I think that's a really, really key point. Like you say, it's largely down to you are in control of your own destiny and if you believe that like you say you can make it happen and turn things around as it sounds well you obviously managed to do during the recession yeah and it, i don't want that to sound too woolly and hocus pocus but it is a it's a truism that's worked for me and i've seen it work in others attitude really does determine your altitude i mean that you can't you can't change someone else's attitude attitude something i i'm responsible for my own attitude for my own outlook on life uh, and actually taking responsibility for how I think and my own attitude has uh, been really important learning for me through my career. And we'll come on to later, actually, more more of your advice for people in the industry, because we're, we're already getting a lot of it there. And I'd be interested to hear if there's any other sort of topics like that that you, you would advise people to go into. I'm interested, um, really, when you made the move, because I know, you know, that there is a well-trodden path from big consultancy to small one and likewise from small consultancy to big. What, what were the key differences that you found that, that you've, you had to adjust to when you moved to a, a small consultancy? I mean, I, I moved from a regulator of 3,000 people to Beringer at, I think, 200. And, you know, mm. I, was, I was a lot more junior than you, but it took me a long time to figure out that I didn't have to fill out a form. You know, if I wanted to speak to HR, they sit across the office. Were there any things that took you a little while to adjust to from leaving the you know, leaving Accenture, I think you miss um, the brand presence and the, the the brand eminence that's associated with the place you work. When I used to tell people I, I work for Bringer, they say Bringer who? Bringer what? Uh, <laughs> when you tell people you work for Accenture, they'd say, "Oh, the Tiger Woods in the airports." Yeah, I know who they are. You know, and so actually going into this anonymous organisation with a brand that's not well known. Um, take some of the shine off of talking about your job with other people because they don't know what you do or who you work for. In terms of the experience of working in a, a smaller organization and doing a startup kind of uh, job with a team, it uh, is incredible how 
empowering that is. And but that's it's a double-edged sword. You know, the fact you don't have to go and ask to fill in a form also means that there's no one there to fix things for you. You know, yeah. if you need to get something done, well, guess what? You're going to go and do it. And um, that sense of empowerment can be very daunting to begin with because you've always wanted to fight the bureaucracy and get away from, you know, poor process and governance that's just making you feel claustrophobic in the big organization. When you come to a small organization, there is no governance or bureaucracy or process getting in your way. That also removes any, any excuses. Yeah. <laughs> You've got no yeah. excuse now. It's just up to you to go build a business. So uh, get on with it. And so w- with no excuses, there's no one to blame. Uh, and therefore, when things aren't going well, you look in the mirror. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's my responsibility. That's my fault. And and taking that personal accountability to a, a level that you just don't get to experience in a large organization like you do when you're in a small organization. And for people who might be looking to make a move to, you, you can give us your view across, you know, from a small 50 person firm up to a 600 person as you are now. If someone's looking to move from a, a big Accenture, PwC, Deloitte type firm to, to a smaller firm, what are some of the things they should think about or really take time to consider to, to make sure that they they hit the ground running in their new firm and, and do succeed in that different environment? Yeah, I think you've got to want to use your initiative and to be um, able to stand up based on your content expertise or your uh, depth of consulting experience that you've had previously and you want to go away and build that rather than be carried in the safer ship and a bigger boat where you feel less of the the, the waves crashing against the ship. You're, you're going to feel the ups and the downs of the journey much more in a smaller organization. You're going to have to use your initiative a lot more. Um, and being an entrepreneur sounds cool or it sounds sexy, but it also is um, emotionally draining and exhausting and can be full of tension and trials that just uh, are unexpected. And there's not a large team to bail you out all the time. So you've got to be prepared for the roller coaster ride that is building and growing a small business into a medium or a larger size business. And is that the same at all levels? So would that be the same if I was, I don't know, senior consultant manager level looking versus a partner level higher? Or are there different nuances at different levels? Well, I think it's true, at least within Beringa at all levels, that we um, try to create an environment where you can be your best self, where you can grow, stretch, develop, and be the best type of consulting, do the type of work you want to do. And we expect you to use your initiative to make sure that happens. Um, and so, you know, whether it's a, a senior consultant joining the business in an interview would say to me, I really want to do digital banking kind of work. And I'm like, okay, cool. When you get here, let's sit down and work out what that looks like and where we can go. And let's go and pitch that together. Because um, we're not hiring to put people into a into a pigeonholed role. I, I, I'm not looking for certain characteristics to fill a spot. We're looking to hire the best talent we can in the marketplace and then to set that talent free on clients so that yeah. they can go and add tons of value to clients. And so that initiative is true, whether you're a senior consultant joining the business or a partner coming into the firm. And you mentioned around you know, there's certain attributes you're not looking to hire for. I'm just curious, what is it you do look for? You know, what, it, what is it that sets that person, okay, yeah, we'll hire them versus, no, actually, maybe they're not a right fit for us. So we don't, we're not really a, a business that copes very well with um, very big egos or with the hero mentality that can sometimes exist around 
the consulting industry. Uh, we're much more of a collaborative team-based organization that values the we, the collaboration internally, and people are extremely collaborative with clients. We're trying to put forward a consulting proposition uh, that is generally sleeves rolled up, strategy execution, partnering with clients, rather than doing it to the client. Uh, and so we're looking for people whose natural default position is team and mm. we rather than I. Yeah. Uh, and that's hard to, to differentiate in necessarily an interview process, but you get to see that through socializing and problem solving activities with people as well as um, what they say about themselves and the work they've done on previous clients. Definitely. And so I want to bring us back to sort of your, your journey, actually. And it was the point you said sort of partner at Accenture had been a, a plan of yours. You, you wanted to hit it. You joined Beringa. You're obviously now managing partner. Was that part of a, again, a, did, you, did you have a plan that said, I want to be running Beringa in, or a consulting firm in a, you know, 10 years time? I think um, it would be a stretch to say it was, it was a plan, but it would be a lie to say it hadn't occurred to me that that was a possibility. <laughs> <laughs> so somewhere in between those two is the truth of um, recognizing I was joining a, an extremely talented and likable bunch of people that I enjoyed building the business with, but recognizing I had something to give and to learn from them and that one day maybe that might be required in fulfilling the role of managing partner was a possibility. And it was no more than that, really, um, that it might be a possibility. But that wasn't what drove me. I didn't join Beringa to become the managing partner. I joined to build a business, to create value for clients. And because I loved financial services consulting, I wanted to build a consulting practice for the financial services client base that was in a slightly different image, doing slightly different things um, than what I'd been doing previously at Accenture. And it was the, I guess it's the, the execution of that dream to build mm. a business uh, and build a consulting practice, the FS practice at Beringa, and the success we had over the first six, seven years that put me in a good position to then add value to the rest of the business and help us write and articulate a vision of where we might be in 2020 and then in 2025 uh, that meant that um, the rest of the partnership elected me to be the managing partner. And were there any considerations you had when when making that transition so like you say you were head of fs presumably there was a conversation around adrian would you would you like to be put forward for this there's conversations in the partnership were there any considerations at the time that you had about is, is this the right thing for me or was that just a very natural extension of building the business that was the fs practice yeah i think it has to feel like it's the right thing for you uh, and it did it felt like a great opportunity uh, uh, a privileged to be able to do it, given the pedigree of the business and the cultural sort of values that were um, absolutely evident across the company, and to be asked and then to be voted in to serve as the managing partner for a two and a half year period was an absolute privilege and a joy to do it. But you've got to want to do it as well. Uh, and I could see how some of the experiences I'd had at, at Accenture and some of the experiences I had over the last six, seven years building the FS practice would benefit us as we think about laying down the foundations for the growth of the business for the next 10 years. Yeah. And I was keen to 
leverage those previous experiences and to help lay those foundations for the future for the whole firm, both in the areas I knew stuff about, financial services, and I knew a little bit about energy and resources at that stage, but also in areas where we saw opportunity in the market, like in the products and services areas, telco, media, consumer products and retail, pharma and life sciences, the newest parts of our business, that whilst not being a content expert in them, I can see the the need for what we do in those industries and the opportunity to go build businesses in those areas as well, which is what I've spent the last two to three years laying the foundations for. How did you make that decision to, to expand? Because like you said, when I left, Beringa was Energy, FS. I think you just hired uh, your telco lead partner. Apologies, I can't remember the chap's name. Yeah, Guy Dent. That was it, Guy Dent. Yep. Um, I remember he did a very interesting presentation at the, I think it was the last company event I went to. He, he's fantastic. And we've had great success building our telco media uh, business. And uh, again, another tough market uh, yeah. for that industry. Lots of tumultuous change impacting those clients, share prices all over the place, change in leadership. Um, so, you know, I think sometimes the 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 tough markets are good times to build those businesses because yeah. it really focuses your mind in terms of making sure you're, you're not just building a business in a rising tide, you're actually trying to articulate a value proposition to clients that resonates even in their toughest moments. How did you decide to go into the next service lines was that similar again market conditions was there some sort of service line synergies that you saw yeah i think there's um there's several reasons one we saw lots of overlap between some of these industries that we're working in what's going on in the insurance industry and in the health industry what's going on in the retail and utilities industry and what's going on in the telco industry and the content uh, work that's going on in the media sector and the challenges that digital is going to have. And we've got lots of digital work impacting our banking clients and their customer base. So you see these parallels and these overlaps between content and transformational change impacting one industry that could learn from another industry. And so we've chosen our industries because there's a, in that Venn diagram, there is an overlap. And also because of some of the depth of the consulting skill set we've been building around regulatory compliance and risk or whether it's supply chain and logistics or digital and customer experience consulting whether it's technology transformation and the, the use of cyber security or what's going on in the you know, data science and analytics space these competencies we've been building are just as relevant and needed in these other industries and actually cross-pollinating between the industries is very valuable back to our heartland of energy and resources and FS. And so it's a synergistic relationship that seems to make sense. And there are markets that it's easy for us to um, go into the market and establish it in the UK first before we become more international in those areas. So it felt like a natural growth of the business. I think we'll touch on later around the international expansion because I, I know obviously now there's the US business, there's the Middle Eastern business that you're expanding. just want to to sort of keep us for a moment on on that step to managing partner and I'm interested you you know like you said you wanted to build a business when you were you were younger that's why you joined was there anything that maybe when you were earlier in your career you thought about being managing partner that now you're at managing partner is either completely different or completely the same as as what you thought it would be that's a good question I think it's it's very different at Beringa so the managing partner at Beringa is the first amongst equals you're elected and then you serve a term and then I got re-elected to serve a second term but you can elect somebody else and so it's very flat 
Um, I imagine, as a, as a kid, if you were the CEO of something, you know, that you'd have a chauffeur-driven car and they'd pick you up in the morning and drop you home and a tailor would come in and measure you up for suits. And so my image of a CEO compared to the reality of being a manager is night and day different because the managing partner bringer isn't the CEO. He's the first amongst equals. He's a, a peer with the rest of the partners facilitating the strategy and helping broker decisions and getting agreement to the, the things that we need to do to perform within a year, but really laying the foundation for the next three, five, ten years. Uh, and so it's a very different than I would have imagined of, as, a, yeah. as a teenager, as a, or as a young consultant, as an analyst. Um, so that bit's very different. The things that are the same are is the ability just to set tone and to use your voice to convey the well for me the the bringer values and the bringer story uh, and so one of the things i learned early on as the managing partner was when i say something people assume that is that is the bringer way and so you have to be very careful but conscious but authentic with your voice because it almost represents the firm's voice um and that's both a, you know uh, a challenge and a great opportunity and, and a privilege at the same time. So mixing those things together is was quite an eye-opening. Oh, yeah, when I say something now, people think that's the Beringer answer. I kind of said something in jest and all of a sudden it's, you know, people saying, oh, that's not the way we do things. Adrian said this. It's like, oh, 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 that was just my opinion. That wasn't... I wasn't dictating that. So, so I think you is there to... an example? I'd love, I don't know. If <laughs> People didn't come in with bright pink ties after you said you like bright pink ties or something like that. No, I think it's just one of those things that you realise that um, you know whether or not you know you're being a role model, you mm. are a role model, and you can't turn that on and off. Yeah. So that's a great aha moment that all of us in leadership positions, uh, all different levels, not just the managing partner, but any leadership influence you are having you are being a role model uh, and we talk about that as consultants whenever we walk onto a client site you're a role model for Beringa and, and you can't stop being one <laughs> even if you, you, you're not carrying your Beringa badge or your Beringa backpack you, you represent Beringa and people are watching you and observing you and they think Beringa's like you yeah uh, and so that that sort of realization for me hit home quite loudly uh, in my head uh, when becoming the managing partner what I say what I do how I behave uh, is really important because whether I like it or not people are observing and yeah. taking mental notes of those things and that that's not about I mean I have to work really hard or anything and sometimes it's the opposite it's go home early role model having a balance of life and talk about my kids and talk about the date I'm going on with my wife on Friday night and we're off to the theatre so I've got to get out of here at six because yeah, we're going for dinner first. And, and it's role modeling the, the other element of work, not just hard work, but getting that balance in life correct as well. So it's kind of all, all dimensions of, of the role. And I definitely do want to touch on that because that was one of the things I remember from when I worked here was you, you were very strict in taking a, I think it was at least a day at home, working from home a week, which was something that I'd never seen before. And you know, even in clients now, there is that perception that harder work equals better work, which I don't always necessarily agree with. Um, one one thing before we do go on to that, because it's interesting what you say around, you are now the voice of the firm, in effect. How have you managed to keep the culture 
the same yet scaled. Now, I know uh, when I was here, Baringa won great place to work multiple times. I think you're now number one large great place to work. Yeah, How 2017. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, that was a fantastic achievement for the firm. How have you... How have you managed to keep that culture, especially as the firm has doubled? Our intention is for the firm to get better each year, to be a business that's about continuous improvement. So we try not to take ourselves too seriously. So we we do our employee opinion surveys and the Great Place to Work surveys. We get lots of feedback from people. We're very flat hierarchically. Uh, We take ideas and inputs from books, from people, from clients, and we kind of listen to all of that and come up with ideas of how it might improve our performance management process or onboarding process or improve the way in which we allocate uh, job assignments out to people. Just that all of the thing is up for grabs. So actually not setting things in stone, being aware that this year we need to be better than we were last year, having an attitude of kind of being grateful for the, the history, but not anchored to it so much that we can't change it in the future. Uh, and hiring exceptionally talented people from industry and from other consulting organizations and from university means that there's talent when they join. I will say to them, you know, it's like we've written chapter two or chapter three of the book and you need to write chapter four with us. So learn about chapters one, two and three because we're building on that that foundation. But what do you want us to be next year and by 2020 and 2025? So actually eliciting all of that input and then acting on it uh, is the way in which the culture and the people practices get better every year. And so it's not about maintaining and preserving. It's about evolving and improving the culture. Presumably, um, am I right? I saw the uh, in the kitchen that the value statements are still there, the awards up there. Same values. Same values. Same values that have underpinned us since day one. And, and they're timeless. And they're about what we stand for, and that makes a huge difference. And they're integrated into all of our performance management, into our review of hiring people, and so that, that's crucial. Uh, what does change is the practices uh, and the ideas and the innovation. So we're trying to innovate not only with our clients, but also in the consulting industry, trying to create a, a market of one where we're the only type of consulting business that looks and feels and works the way that we do both with our clients and with our people. So we're not trying to be like anyone else. We are growing, um, but we're growing into hopefully a market of one where we're distinctive from everybody else, unique, and that we're different. And that's something that we're proud of and keen to maintain. And as part of that growth, we've obviously talked about the role modeling thing, which was a, a sort of big realization for you when you, you uh, took the step up to managing partner. Are there any other, I guess, skills that you or the, the senior partnership here at Beringa have have had to improve or, or learn as the companies doubled in size that maybe were less relevant or uh, less needed when, when it was sort of two, three hundred people. Yeah, I think the, the key learning is that in, in the early days when there were just sort of nine partners in the business when I joined, everything, every decision permeated through the partnership and through the organization almost by osmosis. Yeah. It just... Everyone knew what was going on. You couldn't keep a secret. You know, it was just obvious to everybody that, you know, we'd had our strategy meeting and now we were going to go off and do this. And without any formal communication, without great slideware, we just knew what we were up to and we were in it together and we were off building a business and focusing on these clients' priorities. And uh, and as you get bigger, you need to put a lot more discipline and effort 
into facilitating that process of osmosis. So the communication becomes more important. The drumbeat of sharing ideas and sharing our thinking um, before sharing the answer to the thinking is just as important. So we've learned to, yes, we need to create a, as you, last year we launched our Bringer 2025 vision. Where will we be in 2025? And we didn't go into a dark room with six people to write that we had 250 people across the organization come in for pizza beers and big ideas evenings sharing their ideas of where they want us to be and what they want us to do and so the process of collaborating with internally to leverage all the the best ideas into our strategy has meant that we are very transparent and and we don't just share the outcomes in a more disciplined fashion and write things down and distribute them through email or company presentations or yam jams or, or whatever it may be, podcasts. Um, we, we also involve as many people as we can without making it slow uh, in the process of coming up with those decisions and the future direction of the business. No, that's, uh, I think that's a really key, key point as well, like you say, that the involvement because as as firms grow naturally there you can only fit so many people in a room for sure. beers pizzas and big ideas i love the name by the way <laughs> so one day i will take it for something i don't know what maybe i'll do a do a podcast or i get a bunch of people in for that you can have a podcast called pizza beers and big ideas podcast, oh, uh, I, I think that's a great thank you no, i'll take that one away it's uh i think for me like you say that's a a really interesting point around just how you change that approach to so I think, like you said, in the culture, keep it the same, yet make it different so that it works for the current environment that you're in and re- and being very mindful of that. I, I want to come back to the point you were making about actually about your sort of the time you spend with your wife, your family, that work-life balance. Because like I said, I, I do always remember, I probably was quite surprised, and I mean that in the nicest way, when I, when, you know, if I answered the, what do I think managing partners would do when I was younger I think they work all hours that God sends and I think there's still a lot of people in consulting who do work very long hours so I was always interested to see yourself running the firm but working from home and like you say being quite strict sometimes with your your leaving time could you just talk a bit more about I think your approach to that and also what you've had to put in place to make that work yeah it's really important um not just for me personally, but for each of us in this industry, because we tend to be the type of people who are slightly perfectionist, um, keen to please, very eager to be praised for our work, and slightly addicted to problem solving. I love problem solving. You love problem solving. It's the thing that kind of drives and motivates us is getting with a client and fixing something and making it happen. Um, And so that kind of personality type can easily um, sacrifice what's important for what's urgent and we get this urgency addiction Mm. in our in our culture of consulting and it's dangerous because it gets in the way of real life things that are also really important but may not seem as urgent now my you know i'm I'm married to jen she's uh, the love of my life and i've got four children four boys 17 15 12 and three wow Uh, and so quite a spread in ages and so i have a busy home life and having the discipline that she helped me to create around my working schedule meant that she'd say on Monday nights and Friday nights, you're, you're putting the kids to bed, particularly when the older ones were small. Yeah. You do stories and bedtimes. So you need to be home by 6, 6.30 on a Monday night and a Friday night. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I know you're going to be doing client dinners and you're out with the team and you're working late. And so Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, 
work as late as you need to work. But on a Monday and Friday, I think it'd be a good balance for you if you're home to put the kids to bed and read them stories and bath them and stuff. And that early conversation with Jen just stuck in my head like, wow, what a, if I could make that a pattern, a habit for me, that would put me in really good stead with my wife, a commitment I'm keeping to her and also allow me to just work as hard as I need to in the other times and, and put a bit of a, a fire break in the urgency addiction that we're, I was suffering from at the time. <laughs> Um, and that often hits us in this industry because you know we just love to solve problems. I think that discipline and, and that practice extended when I, as a as a partner in the business, and in, in the last couple of years, I've tried to work from home on a Wednesday. Um, it doesn't happen every week, so it's not a rule for me. It's just a time to, sometimes it's every other week or whatever it is, but that time away from the office and away from clients allows me to think, read, right and uh, take a, my head out of the running of the business and think about the future and I have much more of a strategic day uh, with my head in the clouds a little bit uh, and doing conference calls and things from home that I need to get done but just gives me enough of a fire break away from the the day-to-day drive and things that hit you and for me to choose my agenda and to plan my week in front of me and the things that are really important for us as a business and to to write some of that down and collect my thoughts and be a little bit more strategic in the way I'm approaching my role and, and my responsibilities. So I find that very useful as well. Um, and the other thing for me that, that helps, and it's not the same for everybody, but this is the habit that helps me create that mental balance is running. Yeah. So two or three times a week, sometimes early in the morning, five in the morning, if, it's, if I'm going to be in the office by half seven or off to a client or sometimes a Saturday morning or a Wednesday night I'll just run for 5k 10k and just get out there blow the cobwebs off hopefully burn some calories from all of the (laughs) breakfast lunches and dinners I've been having that week Um, but I find it's like my reset button so running helps me to have you ever played Tetris Nick I have yes right so the game of Tetris we know when this is stacking up I, f- I feel terrible that uh, you have to ask me to, if I played Tetris. I'm getting to the age where, yeah, computer game references quite, don't work. I, was, I know, yeah. I was no, Tetris, checking, yes. My, Tetris um, is like an old person's computer game. It's about the only computer game I've ever played. So, so. It's, it's a real tangent, but I went to the V&A Museum of Childhood. I don't know if you've been. And I had a sad oh. realisation. So it's, it's a great museum to go to, Childhood Through the Ages. And I had a, a very sad realisation because in the electronic games area was an Xbox behind a glass shelf with a little tag that said Xbox, which... <laughs> Made you feel old, didn't it? <laughs> it did, Adrian. I, I sort of had that realisation. I'm now... I like to think of myself as reasonably young, but when you see the games console you played as a child in a museum... Yeah. That, that beats the uh, Commodore 64, which was my first one. They had one of them too. Okay, good. Well, <laughs> but, I think I'll take my kids there and show them my, my, my uh, pre-children toys. Uh, yeah, so, so that, that running is for me like clearing a few lines in Tetris. Yeah. And it gives me oxygen, it gives me space, and uh, and priorities seem to bubble up, and the things that, that were uh, niggling seem to just disappear if they're not that important. So, yeah, being a runner helps. And I, I do like the Tetris metaphor. I'm I'm going to make some generalizations that all of my Go listeners for know for te- about Tetris. If you don't, I'm going to put Tetris in the show notes. I think that whole idea of, like you say, filling up your... I guess your mental Tetris scoreboard and being unable to unload that through running. I assume just with the nature of your role, you're, you're juggling many, many balls, spinning many plates, you know, whatever metaphor you want to use. 
How do you keep hold of those sort of during the day? Are there any tactics or sort of tricks you use around, I don't know, diaries, to-do lists, anything like that to help you? Well, I think um, we're extremely lucky to have a, a brilliant team, both within the partnership, within the consulting team, but also in our corporate team. And so we've got some of the most talented people I've ever worked with in our corporate team running our finance, HR, marketing, IT. You know, it's just, I don't worry about all those things. Yeah. I know we have extremely talented leaders who are great at what they do and they lead with the completely empowered to drive the agenda in their areas forward. And so I, I don't worry about those areas. I get involved as I'm required to do so and invited to go and share an opinion or an idea or brainstorm and something around a whiteboard with them but um, you know lots of that assumption that you're projecting onto the role of managing partner doesn't exist because mm. it's not a CEO it's a facilitative peer amongst equals and guiding and nudging and working together as a team not um, making all the decisions yeah. and so having a very empowered team around us both within the partnership we have a corporate exec a strategy exec a people exec a marketing exec you know all of these different executive groups lead and drive and run parts of the business without me being involved at all yeah. uh, and, and that's extremely powerful uh, and that's kind of part of my um, philosophy on leadership is I should do the things that only I can do yeah. uh, and not try and do everything that everyone else is even better at than I am and so stay out of those things yeah no, I, and it'd be I think further down the line definitely be interested in talking about hiring and, and making the right decisions for the business that, that gives you that freedom I did have a question just on what you said around the work-life balance you, your wife Jen said look Adrian be home Monday Friday these are, I'm getting the sense, relatively non-negotiables. How, how did you, or what conversations did you then need to have with the other people here at Baringa at the time? And, and the reason I ask this is just, I sometimes get the sense that, like you said, we're consultants, we like solving problems, you get carried away with it. And yeah. also you get carried away with, if you're part of a good team and the team's working hard, <coughs> you want to be part of that, you want to be almost showing that you're doing as much as everyone else. And often that comes down to time. How, what, what, com I guess, what advice would you give to someone else, either in your position or, or maybe even more junior? You know, there's plenty of people that, senior consultant manager, senior manager, who have children, who, who want to do sure. those same things. Yeah. I mean, what, what should they, what conversations should they be having or structure should they be putting in place to, to be able to do what you did? The relationship between getting good work-life balance isn't to do with seniority. It's to do with personal habits and and maybe courage to uh, implement a plan that gives you that work-life balance. But I had the challenge as an analyst and I tried to fix it as an analyst. Yeah. Um, I didn't get a good work-life balance by becoming a managing partner. And I think that's my, yeah, I'm not, so I'm not suggesting I, that. I got, a, I got a good work-life balance when I got married and had my first kid <laughs> uh, you know when I was a senior consultant so you know for for me the 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 tips are you know you, you need to take responsibility first and foremost no one's going to create the work-life balance for you and sit down and say Nick what you need to do is go home early on a Wednesday yeah. you need to join the gym you know Thursday night's your gym <laughs> night 
and Fridays you need to go on a date. You know, no one's going to sit there and structure your life for you. Uh, and so you need to take responsibility and you need to create enough headspace to reflect, ponder and to create a work-life balance on paper or on a whiteboard in terms of what, what does good look like for me? What's important to me? What are the things outside of work that I want to commit time to that bring me joy and happiness and fulfillment and peace and, and help me to de-stress? Uh, and knowing the answers to those questions then gives you the ingredients to say, okay, now I'm going to plan out my routine and I'm going to make sure I put some of these rocks in first and then I'm going to fill all around the rocks with all of my work stuff that I want to do as well. And so it's about being disciplined and starting with what's most important um, before the urgency takes over and grabs you and makes you a slave to the, to the project. And so that's um, both a personal discipline, take responsibility, that needs to go first. Then the second one is communicate it. I've never, ever experienced a time where a, a senior consultant analyst, either when I was one or listening to one, say, what's really important to me, I'm in the choir, Thursday nights is choir rehearsal, I need to be there by seven, that means I've got to leave the client at five. Is everyone okay with that? I've never heard anyone say no. Yeah. Well, so as soon as you voice it and say... This is really important to me. I, I love singing in the choir. I'm leaving at five o'clock on Thursday. Uh, I've always seen people say, okay, that sounds great. Yeah, enjoy that. We'll pick up the slack here. And then you end up picking the slack on Tuesday night when this person needs to go to their yoga class. Yeah. Uh, and so it's about being in a team that supports each other having that work-life balance and each of us being courageous, courageous enough both to first think of what is a good work-life balance for you, designing it, and then two, communicating it to those that you work with so that they support you in achieving it. And, and I think it's, I mean, that's a really interesting point. And like you say, having, having the courage to have those conversations because very often they do end, you know, they'll end up in the way you've said. You know, it's interesting, like you say, you, you've never heard anyone say, no, Adrian, you're, you're not going to football tonight or you're not going home. But I think sometimes, like you say, people get carried away and because they haven't planned what they want, they then maybe don't know how to ask for what they want. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It's t two things you, you trigger in my mind there. One is um, that uh, we created a people fund last year. Uh, and so for 2017, we set up a people fund where we gave £300 to everyone who works at Bringer to invest in themselves. Uh, and jokingly, when I announced this, I said, to make yourself a more interesting person, uh, <laughs> to develop a hobby or a habit yeah. or, or a skill that you've always wanted to do. It might be piano lessons. It might be wine tasting. It might be tennis lessons. It could be language class here's 300 pounds you're not allowed to spend it on anything to do with work and uh, you have to spend it on yourself oh, so it has to it couldn't be on a prince tube it had to be no, on. no no we've got training for that yeah. you've got training points to to have project management training go and get that through your training this is to encourage you a nudge from Beringa to you as a member of the Beringa team to go and have a better work-life balance um, and that, that little nudge had fantastic results across the business. People sending in their postcard of what they did. They, they took a skydiving thing. They learned French. They spoke Spanish. They had piano lessons, took up violin, did tap classes, things that they've always wanted to do but never really got around to doing them. Yeah. So we gave everyone a nudge to take the £300, a small amount of money, but enough to say, oh, yeah, I could go and get six you know, one-to-one -one gym instructor yeah. kind of lessons. What, what was the... What was the uh craziest hobby someone took up as a result uh, well i've seen the video of someone uh, having singing lessons and tap dancing those those were quite amusing yeah, at the and, same time <laughs> no, no no two different people but yeah and, and yeah, but what's interesting is 
not just the variety, but actually, and, and you pointed to it, which is my second thought, some people don't have any interests outside work yeah. <laughs> and didn't know what to do. Yeah. And so it's a bit of a head scratch for some to begin with <laughs> to go, what do I want? So they, they're offering me this £300 and telling me to go and take some time to invest in myself. I actually don't know what to do with it. Yeah. And that that is the essence of, you know, people need to take personal responsibility. And here's a nudge to encourage you to take that responsibility. But we all need to have, and the most successful consultants and those who enjoy what they do normally are busy in other areas of their life as well. Yeah. You know, you'll often hear it when I, when I joined Anderson Consulting in 1994 when I did the summer intern. The people I was with, of the thousands of people who applied, there's only 12 of us who got the summer intern scheme. And they all had... I mean, you know, they were mountaineers and marathon runners or captain of the hockey team or played netball for England, you know, and they, these people had uh, interests and hobbies that they were excelling at in their personal life that made them interesting, well-rounded and makes you a better consultant. Yeah. So those who just give their life over to client work and, cons- and to the consulting organization, I don't think are the most rounded, balanced or effective consultants. Uh, and you beat me to it because that was what I was going to ask it having that life experience you know I ask uh, my guests and I'll be interested to get your view what they see that sets apart the best consultants from the average consultant a lot of them jump to emotional intelligence and now I'll be interested to get your thoughts on that but I think part of that comes from life experience and simply being in different situations you know it's, it's hard to be able to read different people in different rooms if you've only been in one type of room with one type of person mm. um from t- just to your point I, I was listening to a podcast by noah kagan and i don't know if you've, you've no. heard of him but he it, what struck me was he he mentioned how in networking events he stopped asking people what they do and started asking people what they do outside of work and actually said that makes from a, a business perspective interesting uh, yeah I like a that. much he said he builds much better relationships with people which then potentially lead on to business relationships, but he makes much better relationships talking about Adrian, you know, what, what do you do out of work? Kids, yeah. family, running, instead of the sort of default answer of, yeah, project management and business analysis. I think there's a, um, what makes a great consultant? Um, curiosity. Uh, for me, people who are curious, who are interested, they are interesting. Um, they're curious about, the client and they're working at Barclays Bank and they're fascinated by how the bank works and its share price and the leadership and the products it offers and the markets it's in and the challenge from the competitors it's facing. So curiosity uh, is a really important characteristic of a successful consultant because that curiosity fuels the drive to <coughs> learn more and develop and personally develop and do great work for clients and so that curiosity and that leads to the the real passion i think you need to be a great consultant um i think there are emotional intelligence i don't really like the phrase or the term but i think being a good listener yeah yeah in that category of emotional intelligence is really important and listening not just to what's being said but the tone of voice the wrinkled brow yeah. the body language the tone the, the everything that's going on around the person so deep listening skills make a make for a great uh, consultant. And then, you know, in our business, we pride ourselves on that curiosity and that listening coming together to 
help us be experts in the area that we want to play. Yeah. So we're not, you know, turning out generalists who just come and help you move house. You know, these are people who love renewable energy and they love the oil and gas market. They're passionate about life and pensions, or they re- they read the Risk Weekly because they love you know risk analytics and risk consulting and yeah. you know so actually that curiosity leading you to create a depth of expertise so that you've got something to share um, both from an intellectual knowledge capital and a, a theoretical point of view but then it's been applied in multiple clients and multi- across multiple um, projects that you've been involved in that you bring to bear for the benefit of the client yes exactly the, the things you mentioned around listening body language I think that the badge you give them can be different, but all of those skills are the core ones that seem to, from people I spoke to, separate their sort of best hires or best people they've worked with from from the potentially good people they've worked with. And like you say, the curiosity one, I think, as well. I guess it comes back to the same as their hobbies, doesn't it? If you need something to talk about and show you're interested in the area you're in. You know? Yeah, most. Uh, if you add to that, um, this uh, a drive you know, this sense that you want to work hard and you're going to make stuff happen. You're not going to be a victim. You're not going to complain. You're not going to, oh, I didn't really like this project. Yeah. You know, you're going to take this project and say, right, what can I learn from this? Yeah, you know, I, I didn't want to be in Coventry working at this client. Um, <laughs> I never ended up in Coventry. I got Birmingham. <laughs> okay, well, I didn't want to be in Birmingham. You know, instead of whining and moaning, complaining about the project you're on, just it's only going to last three, six, nine months. Get yeah. in there. Add as much value as you can, learn as much as you can, network as much as you can, chalk it up and go on to the next one. So a great consultant doesn't see the short term as the end of their career. They yeah. see everything as a as a learning opportunity to develop, to grow, to network, to add value and then to go again and go again. You don't have to resign. You, you just move on to your next project you yeah. know, and, and you get another set of experiences. And so that curiosity with hard work and seeing each opportunity you get to work with a client as a a chance to develop yourself and add tons of value to the client and meet new people. What a what a privilege it is to have a career where things change so rapidly that we never get bored because we're always at the front end uh, of change with our clients and therefore we're developing ourselves in the process. I guess it comes back to what you're saying around plan, so for work-life balance, plan what you want and then make it happen. Where do you sit on, on planning a career? You know, like you say, you, you should take all experiences as learning experiences do you know do you advise people your advisees or people bring her to to actively plan their careers do you advise I mean, what do you advise them well, well given i i joined consulting off of the back of a supposed <laughs> end, end of year football party and uh, did you ever make it to stumbled, the party by the way stumbled in yeah of course i did yeah i just uh, I, i'm not sure i'm the best person to ask because for me it's all been very <laughs> serendipitous right it's um it's an intu- intuition feeling. Like, am I in the right place? Am I learning? Am I being stretched? Do I feel like I'm well rewarded? Am I recognized? And if those things are true and I feel like I'm adding value to my clients, I'm adding value to the company and I'm enjoying it and I'm learning and growing, those things are aligned, I stay. Uh, and, you know, and I stayed for 11 and a half years with Anderson Consulting, which became Accenture. And um I'm 11 years into my career with Beringa, you know, and so uh, I don't jump around. I guess for me, it's been, had a great career, learned so much. I felt like my personal career growth and personal strategy was out of sync with Accenture's strategy. So left uh, and here my, you know, personal growth and opportunity. And 
So it's about having an alignment. Yeah. Uh, and I, I see it in some individuals where I've sat down with them, you know, people who've worked here, and I said, yeah, I'm not sure this is for you. you don't, it doesn't feel like you're enjoying it and what you want to do isn't kind of what the business strategy is and maybe this isn't right for you and that's okay. It doesn't have to be right for everybody. This needs to be you opting in because yeah. um, consulting is a career where it's, it takes a lot out of you. You have to give a lot and it's very rewarding on the other end of that, but you've got to want to do it. Um, and so making sure that you have some alignment between that personal growth, the company strategy and the client work that you're doing, those things being aligned is is crucial. And that's just triggered to me uh, what you said there around you having that open and honest conversation. I, that sounds like something that, well, maybe not planning formally, but understanding internally what you want when you're aligned to a company or a career path. And then having those honest conversations with the place you're working or you know, your boss, whoever it may be, it sounds like something that you would be, you would tell people to do. I don't want, I'm not putting words in your mouth, but is that something that you would be telling people they should be having those honest conversations, both down and up? I think it's really important to, to have a goal, a vision of your career or what you're trying to achieve in your life, and then to have a plan, if you like, of my, my strategy and then my plan. Uh, and then once you have a plan, to not be too rigid with it. Yeah. And so, was it um, Mike Tyson says, it, it, it's great to have a strategy and a plan until you get in the ring and get punched in the face. Yeah. Uh, and then you're then you're a little bit like, okay, I need to react <laughs> now. Uh, and so I have this very, have a, have a vision and a strategy, have a plan, but then roll with it uh, on a weekly, monthly, and an annual basis. And then each, whether it's monthly or six monthly or annually, take some time out check am, am i still on the right path just does it still feel right feel rewarded recognized am i enjoying it okay good let's go again another six 12 months mm. and you don't need to be much more disciplined than that because i think it's the combination of both having a direction that you're traveling that you're comfortable with uh, but being able to react in the moment real time is the best key to enjoying your career yeah i think like you've highlighted Taking that time, though, feels like quite an important step to yeah. to check in. So I think it's very easy, say, in, in a consulting environment to just go project to project to project, deliver, 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 without taking that time to to check in, almost. Yeah, and that's that comes back to your, your point about balance of life, yeah? So checking in with yourself, whether you have a, whether it's running or whether it's meditation or yoga, whether it's... You know, for me, Sundays are a day of rest. And so I use my Sunday as a more reflective day where I you don't have the TV on and I don't I don't work. I don't get my laptop out. I use Sunday as a you know, walk in the countryside with the family and I make a roast dinner for the family. And we have family time. We play board games. And, we, and it's a very different pace. And, and therefore, you think differently when you're in those different environments and, and creating those. And holidays are good times for those as well. I mean, going away getting away from the hustle and bustle of daily life on a holiday is a good time to reflect, but everyone needs to make sure they're creating those opportunities to, for that mental stimulation and renewal that happens yeah. when you're in a different environment away from the, the daily drumbeat of your project life. Definitely. So I want to touch on actually, and it, it, we've talked about your health, you know, that you run, you keep yourself in shape. Uh, and like you, I've probably about half a stone over Christmas. So I'm not feeling pretty guilty about you saying that right now. I feel that's I feel that's all right. If it, if it helps you, don't look like you've put on half a stone. It's, um, you, you see some people who look like they've put on a lot a lot more stones over Christmas. Uh, but one one specific area of health that I know 
I always, well, let's say I always admired when I was here was actually, you don't drink. I don't know if you've ever drunk. I don't know. No, no. Teetotaler. And again, this is, you know, it might be the same, it might be the same answer as, as balance in your life. But I know when I was younger in consulting, it's quite a, it's a profession that comes into contact with alcohol a lot. You know, I'll take out the, I'm not going to say anyone's forced to drink, but there's a lot of client drinks. There's a lot of socializing in firms. Some clients, let's say, have an expectation that things will be done at the pub. I know I've run into clients where that is the, the de facto uh, business meeting, business room. I just wanted to, to understand sort of how, especially in your earlier career, when you were coming up as analyst, consultant, senior consultant, you know, in the 90s, there probably was a lot of probably even more drinking around. You know, this was before the recession. How, if at all, did you manage that? And did it cause any challenges? Just, sorry, one slight distraction there. You said in the 90s. Nick, what, what year were you born? Uh, so I was born in the 80s. Uh, okay, uh, good. I was, okay, yeah. uh, sorry, it just, made me feel really old then. When you <laughs> the 90s, was some kind of history lesson. You, or you didn't have one of those big um, big phones that was a shape of a size of a brick. Uh, yeah, of course I did, yeah. So, I remember life before phones. So, my, yeah, so in the 90s, when I was young, uh, in the consulting <laughs> workplace, I mean, being an analyst... Don't forget, being an analyst, uh, being a young consultant, came straight after being at university. Yeah. So if, you, if ever you're going to feel pressure to drink, it's Freshers' Week. Yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> it's true. It's all Freshers' fortnight. You know? So being at university, you get loads of pressure. You know, I didn't drink, and I chose not to drink. And I, I love, I love to dance. I, I love to party. I, I'm, I enjoyed being at nightclubs in my in those university days and early career days. Uh, and you know, alcohol was just never something that was part of my life. And I didn't want it to be part of my life. So I found it very easy either to deflect when those people say, oh, no, I've already got one here and I've got a black currant and lemonade or whatever it might be, or I don't drink and, and, and that's fine. But I also found that that pressure that you refer to does kind of exist. And by me standing up and saying, I, I, I don't drink, and other people say, actually, can I have a lemonade as well? Can I, can I join yeah. you in not drinking? So I found if, you know, if you stand up for your principles or what you want to do sometimes other people feeling the peer pressure oh thank goodness you're not drinking i'm going to join you i'll just have a water (laughs) and so it actually created almost a permission for some of my friends and those around me to just join in not drinking as well as the pressure i felt to joining drinking yeah um and there are a, a few moments in that early years where you know i remember one of the pieces of feedback i got from one of my seniors at the time was you know if you don't get drunk with these clients and drink with them, you're never going to be a successful consultant. You know, wow. That's where all the decisions get made. That's where yeah. the networking relationships happen. If you're not drinking, I think you're really going to struggle. Uh, and I never found that to be true. I found that people were respectful of my decision not to drink and I was able to engage with them emotionally and conversation-wise that didn't revolve around alcohol. It did create one or two amusing incidents around the following day saying you were there and everyone else was drunk oh no you remember everything that was said and so now i've used that to my advantage occasionally in terms of picking up little clues of what people are thinking and things they share when they've had uh, three or four pints they might not have shared beforehand so it's been interesting amusing but it's never been a problem for me because it was something that was important to me not to to uh to drink and so that decision made it really really young and just stuck by it and it's actually been uh, a great 
positive thing in my life. And so, you know, I'm trying to create an environment here where people can choose those things. Yeah, of course, lots of people go to the pub and have drinks. I've got no issue with that. I think it's, it's great and I go with them. Yeah. Um, and there's no judgment in it, but it should be about personal choice uh, and just giving people the space to choose, uh, not uh, feeling like they're pressured. And I'd hate, you know, for someone to coming out of university and having had that pressure at university to feel it in the workplace as well. I think that's wrong. I think the workplace needs to facilitate people making personal choices and, and not just getting carried away with the norm of what happens in a certain industry. And I think that's really refreshing to hear, you know, especially if I think back to where I was sort of 23, 24, and you are getting those pressures, you know, having someone like yourself who has been able to succeed without that. And I think your, your point around very often actually people don't want to drink. I just, I, it triggered, I, I met a friend uh, a few, gosh, what was it? Uh, a few a few months ago, and he was already there with a beer, and he said, "What do you want?" I was like, "Actually, it's a Wednesday. I'll just have a blackcurrant and lemonade. Mm-hmm. Blackcurrant and soda is actually my my tipple of choice." Right. And he almost looked a bit upset. He was like, "Oh, if you'd told me that beforehand, <laughs> uh, I, would have I, I wouldn't have my I wouldn't have had my beer." You know, it came clear actually. He was, "Oh, I w- you know, I wanted to go to yoga tonight, but I was going to have a just a just a quick drink, you know, a quick beer with you, and then yeah. you know, that's me done." At. And like you say, sometimes actually there's just a I guess a cultural expectation that people do it whereas you don't have to and I think to your point as well even though some clients may push it ultimately people respect your decision and probably respect you more for that yeah and, and I think um, what's amazing we're a massively diverse city right London and uh, the nationalities and the cultures and the heritage of where people how they've grown up differently and all the rest of it we need to expect difference yeah. and, and embrace it and and just go along with you know the fact that we're all different and we should support each other in our differences as well as trying to create a sense of unity and oneness and getting that balance right particularly in a firm like Beringa where we you know celebrate the diversity and try and make their business as inclusive as possible but at the same time you know try and have a single set of values and, and a culture that resonates for everybody who works here and so you know, you've got to get that balance right. And I think that nicely actually brings us on to, to diversity generally in the industry. I, I think over the, the last sort of, at least as long as I've been working, I've, I won't give you a time frame anymore, um, <laughs> that diversity has become much more of a, a prevalent conversation. I think rightly so. I know you bring a publish a lot of detail on diversity, gender pay gaps, yeah, uh, sure. or the difference between gender pay, difference between grades. I mean, what What is your view on diversity particularly in the consulting industry is it is it a natural function of the people going in are there things that firms should be doing to foster diversity at all levels what's your thoughts yeah we're pretty um, clear on our strategy around making Beringa as an inclusive a, a place as possible that would support people from different backgrounds different ethnicities different religions different faiths different cultures uh, different gender different abilities disabilities uh, also going as far as seeing different personality types and the way we think needs to be different, different educational backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds. So diversity in its broadest sense is enriching for us as a society and enriching for us as a firm. And so we want to make sure that we are an appealing place to work for everybody and making sure when diverse candidates in the broadest sense possible join Beringa, they feel included and part of the business. And, you know, and that is easy to measure on some dimensions like gender and harder to measure on other dimensions but all dimensions of that diversity um, spectrum are important to us 
and that's something that we've been striving to to do. Now we're a, a young business, we're a teenager. You know, the business has been around 17, 18 years. And so when we started the business in the different areas, it was get a group of friends together who are happy to take some risk and leap out and go build a business. And in the early days, diversity wasn't on our radar as something that was important or, you know, we were worried about, will we survive this year? <laughs> are we, are we going to make it to the end of the year? So it wasn't a, you know, front and center of our strategy, but our people and culture strategies we've talked about has been uh, crucial to our success and diversity is a crucial part of that strategy. So something we're very keen and aware of and doing more and more, not uh, resting on our laurels to be, laurels to become uh, a more diverse and a more inclusive and supportive work environment for everybody. So something we're making good strides on and there's absolutely more to do, both as a firm, but also as an industry. What, I guess, on an industry level, do you, do you see as needing to be done? Is there a specific area of diversity that needs more focused than others or is it uh, just a broad push to open the industry up to more people i think the industry is alive to it i mean you you read every consulting's annual reports and the pressures that are, are on all of these consulting business we're all alive to it what needs to happen is we need to um take the the rhetoric and the the nice words and make sure they translate into culture and behaviors inside those organizations so all the nice things that we keep saying about diversity are actually real on the ground and so one of the things i'm proudest of if you like is the closeness to which we walk the talk of what we're trying to achieve so the gap between the marketing of ourselves and the reality of ourselves we try and keep that gap as narrow as possible. We still make mistakes, we still get things wrong, and we still got a long way to improve, but we're very honest about that. And I think the industry in general just needs to not play games with this topic and yeah. have non-executive directors who, who are all female and then that changes their statistics or you know, just trying to game the system. This is about a more genuine embracing of diversity uh, and making that real and not about hitting some quota or target or statistical you know, report. Uh, uh, and that's our philosophy around it. And we know we have work to do, but it's something that we're excited to embrace and to be part of a generation of consultants that make the consulting industry a better place to work for all people. Yeah, I, I think that's, uh, again, just a really interesting point around. It's the I guess it comes back to, like you say, problem solving and the root causes of why are certain be it gender be it race certain types of people not climbing in the industry or not coming into the industry at all and how do we change that i think is what you're saying how do you fix that root cause for the future just one thing really that that triggered from sort of calling the business a teenager and one question i, I always like to ask my guests is, is what would they what would they say to people just entering the industry but i'm i'm going to ask it slightly differently to you and then you can take the age range how you want is you, you mentioned one of your sons is 17, so starting to, to think about you know, the foundations he puts in place for adult life. What career advice do you give him or would you give someone of, of that sort of age? Oh, that's that's a, it's a great question. Um, it's much easier to give advice to people who aren't your family. <laughs> um, and so I'm going to imagine a 17-year-old that's listening and they're not just holding his hand up and say, Dad, speak to the hand. Um, so, uh, you know, it's got to be about a, a combination of um, 
loving what you do and do what you love, right? So you, you need to, when you engage in something, work, you need to l- love what you're doing and be passionate about it and bring the positive attitude and the can-do attitude to what's in front of you. And then as you do that, um, working out what it is that you really love that then you want to go and do next. So you're not going to, you know, I, I was never a, one of those kids that just wanted to, you know, be in a band or or play football for a living. I never really knew what I wanted to do. I mean, my dream when I was asked to do my A-levels economics is I'll be the Chancellor of the Exchequer when I grow up because it's the combination of economics and politics that I love, which is what I studied at university. Um, but what a boring aspiration to have as a teenager <laughs> to become Chancellor of the Exchequer. Uh, and so today I think it's about love what you do and then eventually when you work out what you love, do what you love. Uh, and that, that following your passion and being passionate about what you're doing will lead you to good places. Doors will open. You'll get well recognized. People will want to work with you. And that creates more opportunity. That opportunity broadens your horizons of what's possible. And with those broader horizons, new doors open for you. And then you do that really well and another door opens. And so it's, uh, uh, that's my philosophy on it is, you know, don't get hung up on trying to work out what, it, what the job is or what the yeah. career is. But uh, just, you know, have that passion and love what you do and do what you love. Oh, brilliant. And, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe your sons will listen to this in the distant future. <laughs> you, know, you never know. Well, I, I told you I, once before when I had this um, conversation with my son, who was at the time he was 14, and uh, he, I, what do you want to do when you go get older? He said, oh, I think I want to be a consultant. And I had that kind of proud feeling of, <laughs> oh, he wants to be a consultant. That's great. He said, yeah, I, I, think, I think I'll be the managing partner of Bringer. <laughs> as if in, in his in his world he could just have that job <laughs> that he didn't you know, need to go and work for 25 years first to, to earn it just, oh, I'll have, when you finish doing that just, just pass it to me yeah I'll do that yeah so <laughs> nepotism and uh, no, so yeah so uh, you know my, my kids have got a long way to go but their their drives and passions are very different my oldest my 17 year old you know wants to study history at at Cambridge and and do something in that sphere and politics is his passion so history and politics are things that drive him so it'd be interesting to see what you make of a career of that as he actually goes through university and works out what he wants to do and like you like you said you you did uh, politics and economics so I did politics philosophy and economics and I I think I had a reoccurring similar theme to you of I'm not sure what I want to do so I'll do stuff that sounds interesting and could get me somewhere and yeah. you never know your son maybe That's could great. could decide he wants to be a who knows a consultant he who might knows? he might accidentally go to the wrong football practice and <laughs> you know, follow in your footsteps so I'm I'm very conscious of of your time I've just got three three last questions really to to ask the first is actually one from I, I know we're both mutual fans of the Tim Ferriss podcast it's yeah, actually it's one that my, my one of uh, my last guests Sort of afterwards, just said, I'd be interested in finding out about this for other people you interview. So I'm going to ask it, and we'll see. Is it's actually morning routine? So you, sure. you know, Tim's very interested. Is there any habits or morning routines you have? Over to you. What is your morning routine? So I've, I, I don't have a singular one, um, but I have several that repeat, if you like. So uh, a bit of meditation, uh, a bit of reading, um, a bit of prayer, and a bit of exercise. Now, try and get some of those into my morning. I don't manage all of those every morning. I tend not to eat. So one of the things that Tim loves to know is about, what do you have for breakfast? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and for me, you know, I, I pretty much follow a, um, unless I'm a client breakfast or a, a sort of a, uh, some kind of entertaining thing at breakfast, I tend to eat at 12 or 1 o'clock. 
So I don't have anything to eat. So I, I finish eating at 9 p.m. So deliberate sort of intermittent fasting. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like 16 hours of fasting a day and eight hours of eating. Yeah. Um, so I kind of eat between one and nine in the afternoon to evening and then try not to eat again until the next lunchtime. Uh, that doesn't happen every day, but that's four or five days a week. That's my morning. Um, I, if I can run in the morning, that's my favorite time to run, sort of six o'clock in the morning, just when it's crisp and fresh. That I love that. If I get a chance to do a bit of reading or listen to a podcast, I often read. Uh, I try not to do email uh, until I'm either at the office or I've decided it's time to respond to everything that's in my inbox. So I try and save the first hour or two not responding to other people's agendas, but setting my own agenda. Do you, uh, do you have alerts set on your phone? So do you get emails pushed or do you pull them? I'm just curious there. Yeah, no, it's all, it's always refreshing. Yeah. So it, it's pushed. Um, it's just having it in airplane mode or turned off or leaving it alone. Okay, yeah. I've, I have started actually doing airplane mode in the morning for the same reason. But. Yeah. And, and med- it's incredible how much time's wasted doing email. Yeah. What a time killer. So if you don't look at your email till nine... I can get just as much done between seven and nine as if I'd looked at email at seven and then I might waste time between seven and nine. So, yeah. And I, I think, like you say, you're, you'll always, you'll often hear people say how busy they are because they have so many emails. And exactly like you say, how many emails are in the urgent and important category? Yeah. Uh, we have phone numbers for a reason. And I, I do think that if something serious happens, that's what the, what people will do. Uh, Meditation is an interesting one. I mean, I've, I've I've tried and continue to try Headspace, the app. What do you yeah. What do you do, or is there a yeah? So normally uh, a, a verse or um, the the five minute journal. So using the five minute journal to just start with, uh, you know, three things I'm grateful for and three things I'm, uh, you know, hoping that will happen today that would make would make today great. And so a little pondering in a journal. Um, for five minutes that's all you know it's not a big heavy thing it's a short sharp contemplative and then the actual act of writing something down seems to help Uh, and the attitude of gratitude kind of sets the day up well in my head Uh, and the exercise on top of that just makes you feel slightly self-righteous and a little bit like I've had a victory today already because I got up early and I ran four miles and I came home well I'm already a winner and it's only 7.30 that's great, and then you go off to work, and not thinking that, but there is this, yeah. there's a, an embodiment of positivity because of it. You've achieved something, like you say, already in That's the day. That's right, yeah, and you know, and you know, and yeah, running's my thing, so it, it's not a, a big ask. But if I can do that two or three times a week, then crikey, just the endorphins, the, the mood is lifted, and uh, and the stress is gone, and you've, you're kind of, I'm in the office. You know, I'm normally in the office, I drop my kids at 6.50 something and I get the 6.59 train. And so I'm normally in the office by 8. Um, uh, and so you're then you're into a, a pretty good setup for the day. Yeah. And it's it's good to hear, especially someone like yourself, you've got four kids. There's probably a lot going on in the morning, I guess, that actually you make time to fit these things in, even with all of that going on. Yeah, otherwise I'm grumpy. <laughs> and so, you know, it's, yes, it's selfish because I enjoy doing it, but it also sets me in a good m- mood for work and a mood for you know, dealing with four kids. <laughs> so no, I'm, I'm, I, I think that's really helpful. I know um, my previous guest, Dom, I'm sure will, will find that really useful. Um, I know he does 
sim similar in terms of exercise and other elements. The the next question, and this could be as long a list as you want it to be, I have a feeling there might be a few for you, is, is really around books. So we've talked about a couple of books that have had really big impacts in your life. What books or book, or it could be different scenarios, do you find yourself giving or recommending to people most often? I, I'm, I'd usually say in Beringa, but take it how you want. You know, it might be people in Beringa, it might be your, your kids, it might be wider. Yeah, so the um, As a Man Thinketh, yeah, the book by James Allen I talked about earlier, um, I've shared that with uh, a fair few people, as I did with Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen R. Covey. Um, and, and then well, as the, when I got elected managing partner, I thought one thing I could do is each year, I, I'd probably read, I don't know, 20, 30 books in a year. Um, I'll pick my favorite book and I'll, I'll give it as a present to all the other partners in the business. So each Christmas, whether they like it or not, uh, <laughs> the partners in the business get a gift from me. So in two, 2015, I gave them uh, two books that really struck me that year. One was How Will You Measure Your Life by Clayton Christensen. Okay. Really good kind of just kind of you talk about having a bit of a period of time to reflect and set goals and make sure you're on the right path that that book does that in a, in a brilliant way how will you measure your life and the second one was drive uh, the surprising truth about what motivates us by daniel pink uh really yeah, great book so those are the two books i gave out in 2015 2016 we were in a um, massive internal kind of push around innovation, innovation with clients. I bought everybody the Elon Musk biography yeah. by uh, Ashley Vance. Uh, and Elon Musk and his story and the risk-taking and the, uh, the drive he has to make a difference uh, at a scale and a level that just blows your mind, uh, really, I found inspiring and I wanted to share that. And then this year, this Christmas, I, I bought everybody... Um, Team of Teams by Stanley McChrystal. Absolute uh, love the book. One, the history of the Iraq War and some of the things that are going on at the time politically that I lived through and then through his lens kind of relived a little bit and, and helped my understanding of some of the things that were happening. But two, what I see in that book is this Team of Teams philosophy that is how I think businesses should be run, both our, some of our client businesses, but also how I think a consulting business should be run. Um, not hierarchical, not command and control, uh, heavy on intelligence and data at the fingertips of those who are going to use it, devolve all of that to the front line and empower people to um, go out there and do their best. And the role of a leader not being the grand chess master, I know all the best moves, the role of a leader is a gardener to create an environment where other people grow where they achieve their best uh, and that kind of aha moment that pivoting away from the leader being the chess master knowing everything to the leader being the gardener and facilitating other people's brilliance is exactly what I'm trying to do and we're trying to do at Beringo in terms of creating this type of culture and team of teams so that book I bought for the partnership and gave to everybody. So I think you'd love that, Nick. Yeah, I think yeah, that should definitely be on your reading list. I'll, I'll check it out. And it's, uh, yeah, I mean, that a very comprehensive list and some great ones for me. I mean, this, this question is as much for my listeners as it is for me. Because like you, I, I like to read. I, I, I actually listen to a lot of books on Audible. I don't know if you use Audible as well as podcasts. No, I like to read books and listen to podcasts at the moment. Yeah. No, I haven't quite got into the Audible thing, but maybe I should. Well, I... I find it works well for 
higher level books where maybe they're putting across a concept, but it's it's not something you find yourself needing to repeatedly read. If there's right. something where you, it's a more of an in-depth concept that you do want to go back and you know, spend some time thinking on, actually having a book where you can read a passage four or five times. So I read with a pen in my hand. because So most of the, my books have scribbles and asterisks and underlined bits and circles. And so I don't know what I'm reading. I'm trying to... Me, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Absorb it more than the podcast. I feel meditative and ent- yeah. entertaining, but not so uh, feeling like I need to take notes. I, 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 I'm a Kindle user, so I, I do. Um, I, I, I envy you in that. I wish I could do that with Kindle. You, you can, but it's not very good. Yeah. You know, it's not, not as easy, easy as no, yeah. note next door to yeah, asterisk. Because I'm, I'm old, Nick. <laughs> Next time I'll come with the gift of an old Game Boy. My, um, oh, my, yeah. my Christmas Thanks. present to Maybe my wife even better. was a PlayStation from when we were children. It's, um, my Her nephews, who are about your kid's age, didn't, didn't really know what it was. It was <laughs> one of those relics from the past. Uh, and then very last question, Adrian, and I'm a bit cheeky with this one because it's a three in one, is if you had three people in front of you, you had one person who's just starting their career in consulting, you had one person who was four to five years in, let's say, say consultant to manager level, and you had one who was maybe on the cusp of partnership or similar place to where you were at Accenture. If you had to give a piece of advice to each, what would it be? Wow. That's a tough question. Um, yeah, that is three questions. Um, well, just starting your career, I think I've, I've probably given that piece of advice, which is be curious, accept every assignment that you come along, that there's something you're going to learn from it. And in day one, you're not going to be consulting to the CEO of... Uh, BP, you know, you're, you're going to be doing research, you're going to be creating a storyboard for some slides, you're going to be doing some spreadsheets for a business case, so you're going to be doing, you know, some of the, the grunt work, but in there you're going to learn lots. You're going to learn a lot about in, the importance of information and data and research and telling a story, and, and you're going to learn something from it. So at the beginning of your career, uh, I will say to everyone, at least when you enter into the consulting world, you need to give it two to three years just to absorb as much as you can. Don't worry about where your career is going and what, what, where, where it's heading. Just absorb. So that would be the for the first person. The second one, you know, by the year four and five in the career, you, you've probably had enough breadth of experience to know where you want to go deep. So what are you going to become famous for? You need to have an answer to that question. And you need to now be a little bit more intentional uh, about the work that you do and the projects that you take and the ones you sidestep and uh, go after something else. Um, and you need to take responsibility for developing your tea. You've had some breadth, now you need to get some depth. What's it going to be in? What are you passionate about? What are you interested in? What motivates you? Uh, and be more intentional about the development of your career and the client work that you do. Uh, also, the one other thing I'd say to both of those individuals at the beginning and uh, at that four or five year point is... It's all about people. It's all about relationships, both in the firm and in the client place. It's never too young to start being a good, not networker in that cheesy, sleazy sense of the word, but in that, you know, build relationships, make friendships, stay in touch with people when you finish the project, take them for a coffee three months after you left, invite them for lunch a year later, say, I haven't seen you all year, how's it going at X? Uh, and so build up your relationships to the extent where you've made friends with people and keep track of and in touch with those people throughout the rest of your career. And to the person who's just made partner or approaching partner, um, 
you've got to be able to add more value than you get. So the, the, the secret to any of us in this service industry is to provide more value than we receive. And then you remain relevant. And so you should always be thinking about, am I giving more value both to my client and to the firm than I'm getting? And if you are, then you're going to have a successful career as a, as a partner. And the final thing I would say to that individual is, you got to where you are by being a chess master. Now it's time to learn how to be a gardener. Brilliant, and I, I think that'll be the uh, the quote of the quote of the podcast. And I'm going to going to go away. And team of teams. I stole that from Team of Teams. So gonna, they're, yeah. they're, they're out my words. I, I'm good at plagiarizing, and I tell you, I stole that from there. And it, it's uh, I think it's true. So no, thank you very much. And just the last one, really, is that for anyone who's enjoyed the, this conversation, uh, wants to find out more about yourself or about Baringa, where where would you point them to? Yeah, I've just. Um, I am completely open to being contacted on my email address, so adrian.betridge at beringa.com and happy to take questions or answer questions that people have about either Beringa or life in consulting or career advice. Uh, yeah, I'm more than happy to do so. And thanks very much, Nick, for interviewing me and for being generous in not too many hardball questions. And uh, I've really enjoyed the chat. So thanks very much and good luck with your uh, podcast series. Oh, thank you very much, Adrian. I've really enjoyed it as well. And yeah, all the best for the week. Thanks Brilliant. a lot. Cheers, Nick. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Climb in Consulting podcast. If you did, I would be very grateful if you could leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast platform of choice, whichever one you may be using. And please also share this with anyone that you think could benefit from hearing today's interview. If you want to get in touch or give me any feedback about the podcast, please feel free to drop me an email. It's nick at climbinconsulting.com and I look forward to hearing from you.